It's the dead of winter and you're driving home. In my case, it's to my house outside of New York City on the eastern end of Long Island. I remember coming home and huddling with blankets on the couch until the place warmed up. The use case for a thermostat that is accessible over the internet was so obvious, I wondered why it took until 2011 for Nest to launch. It would have been prohibitively expensive for me to heat a weekend home throughout the week, and a timer wouldn't work as I was never really sure I was going to be at the house on a weekend. So the perfect solution, a thermostat that can be remotely accessed from a smartphone over the internet to turn on the heat as I'm on the highway and still a couple of hours from getting home. That's what Nest does. It's a thermostat that's connected to the wireless network in your home. There's a corresponding downloadable app for your Android or iPhone that when you open it, shows you the temperature of the room. If you have multiple zones in your house, you can see the temperature in each zone. You can even see the temperature outside of your house. Best of all, there's a friendly interface that allows you to adjust the temperature upwards or downwards. In my case, I typically pull over in traffic on the Long Island Expressway about an hour away from my home to adjust the temperature. You'd be forgiven if you thought that the Nest was the first instance of a connected device that was part of the smart home. The truth is that people have been talking about and building some variation of a smart home for decades. When I refer to a smart home, I'm referring to a house featuring intelligent technology that simplifies and automates everyday activities such as turning on lights, locking the door, lowering shades, and yes, changing the settings on your thermostat. You can call any device smart that's capable of doing something autonomously. A smart thermostat automatically adjusts the heat downward if there isn't any motion in my house. That's what makes it autonomous. Smart devices are almost always devices that are connected to a network. The first connected locks and light switches introduced to the home more than a decade before Nest weren't even connected to the internet. They were connected to a standalone device in the house called a bridge that you could operate remotely only if you were in the house. The catch? They were connected from the lock or the light switch to the bridge using protocols you've probably never heard of called Z-Wave and Zigbee. Think of a protocol as a language for one device to speak to another. Wi-Fi is also a protocol, but it couldn't be found in these early devices. In 2004, you could operate connected locks and connected lights from a mobile device, but not an iPhone, because the iPhone wasn't launched until 2007. It's not hard to see why your average consumer had difficulty getting excited about this type of configuration. First, you needed a dedicated remote control to make these devices work. And second, they only worked when you were inside of your house. Fast forward to 2011 and Nest and a time when most people you knew had a smartphone. While Nest wasn't the first smart thermostat, they captured the tech community's imagination with a clever interface and by putting a Wi-Fi chip inside their thermostat that connected it to the internet. I could finally heat up my house from the road. Big companies and startups alike began to focus on what other devices, if connected to the internet, could capture the public's attention and gain mass adoption. This space fascinates me. First, because it promises to transform the way we live. Second, because it has been at the cusp of taking off for decades. And lastly, because it represents big business for technology companies and tech startup entrepreneurs. If you want to gain a deep understanding of the future of the smart home, the best way to do that would be to line up some of the most critical thinkers in the space and ask them what they are doing and what they think the future looks like. And that's exactly what I did in this series. In the course of seven episodes, you'll hear interviews from leaders at Amazon, Walmart, Honeywell, GE Lighting, and Philips Lighting. 
You'll also hear my conversations with CEOs of leading startups who are developing innovative solutions for everything from water management to smart vents to cameraless security solutions. In this podcast series, you'll hear my vision about how the smart home develops from here and which companies vying to control the smart home are likely to emerge as winners in this space. You are listening to Predicting Our Future. I'm Andrew Weinrich. This podcast explores current industries that are ripe for massive disruption, as well as some of the most exciting opportunities for entrepreneurs to explore. This is the first episode in a series about the future of the smart home and my prediction that in the near future, the smart home will change the way you live. In this episode, I trace the history of the smart home and try to contextualize where the smart home movement sits in the larger technology category called the Internet of Things. Think about smart homes as places where people live that contain devices connected to the internet. Companies write software to program these devices, all with a design to make your life easier. Now let's imagine for a moment all of the places you might want connected devices outside of the home. A car could have a device that monitors where it goes and the wear and tear on the wheels. This would all be reported back to the cloud, sharing with the driver at some later date that it's time to realign or change the tires. Machinery within a factory might send out a report of its performance and then be adjusted to increase the output of whatever the factory is making. The Fitbit bracelet on your wrist captures your steps and can suggest what you need to do to improve your health. All of these examples are smart devices, and all of them, including devices that make up the smart home category, are part of a bigger category called the Internet of Things, or IoT. Professor John Barrett is the head of academic studies at the Nimbus Center at Cork Institute of Technology in Ireland. I was drawn to him after watching his TEDx talk on the future of IoT. Not surprisingly, while connected devices have become very visible recently, work on these devices, or as John refers to them, sensors, has been going on for a long time. The Internet of Things, in a way, it's not a recent concept in that there has been research on wireless sensor networks for decades. And the Internet of Things is fundamentally a wireless sensor network that is now connected to the Internet. So the activity of the Nimbus Center has grown out of research that we were doing for quite some time in the whole area of wireless sensor networks for various forms of monitoring. But these usually connected to a dedicated uh, non-public wireless network, whereas the Internet of Things connects the sensors effectively to the public internet. And the research community is increasingly referred to as cyber-physical systems. One of the interesting insights from my conversation with John was his perspective in not focusing on the individual functionality of a device, but on the societal benefit of connecting certain devices to the internet. Approaching it from a national or a government point of view, you have major problems um, like global warming, national security, and so on, and energy management. And conceivably, the Internet of Things can help, if not to stop them, at least improve things. So if you have the ability to monitor flooding, obviously, with great sympathy, we've all seen the problems in Houston and the problems that are now happening in the Caribbean, if you have some ability to monitor, say, groundwater levels, um, river flows, rainfalls, 
you have some ability to be perhaps to be able to predict in advance when and where flooding is going to occur. If you can manage energy better and increase energy efficiency, you can reduce energy consumption and therefore the impact on the environment and perhaps hold off global warming or at least slow it down. With the growth in international terrorism, some of it caused by the internet itself, the ability to be able to, be able to better monitor what's going on is a major market. The IoT space is already huge. Total global spending on IoT devices and appliances across all environments, work and home, was an estimated $737 billion in 2016 and is projected to reach up to $1.4 trillion by 2021. According to a McKinsey Global Institute report, IoT is projected to have an economic impact of somewhere between $4 to $11 trillion on the global economy by 2025 when factoring in its impact in sectors like manufacturing, health, retail, and the smart home. I wanted to know, how did John think of the smart home in the broader context of the entire IoT space? I guess the current perception of the smart home is one of gadgets, one of what would be seen as home automation, more and more home automation, and things like the smart um, speakers, um, smart appliances, smart security, smart energy management, all sorts of individual gadgets that can allow you to do one thing or another. And I don't think that is the long-term evolution. There's two separate questions. What will the smart home be? What would I like the smart home to be? It's very difficult to predict these days, even five years into the future, never mind 10 or 20. But I could, I could say where I think the smart home, I would like it to go. It's not just a home of gadgets. It's a home that's embedded in a wider smart community. And that's, I think, is a wider concept which needs to be taken into account for the long-term evolution of smart home technology. He gave me one intriguing example of what a smart home community could be capable of if all of the homes were connected to a central network and communicating with one another. Perhaps water levels are rising in one part of the community. The smart home detects it. There's water levels beginning to rise. You spread an alarm to the other areas of the community. Um, as it propagates through different houses, it can map out the direction of propagation, where it's rising fastest, predict down the line, um, say, okay, it's unlikely that this street or this street need, will need to evacuate. It's heading your direction. Be prepared. So the the homes begin to form a network that look out, that looks after the people. Here's another example of how, in John's view, the smart home is more effective if it is integrated with connected devices, not in the home. In my car, there is no reason if I'm wearing a health monitor why my car can't communicate with the health monitor and pass the data upwards to some data analytic service that say is monitoring how my heart is behaving. I move from my car to my home, I want the home to take over that role. I move from my home to somewhere else. I would like for that data from me to still be uploaded seamlessly so that in a way we're not looking at a smart home, we're looking at a smart life because the home is the people who live in it. And the smartness is something we should be able to carry with us. It's not just a matter that there is just this single smart home that does something. And that's where we are at the moment. I was curious where this idea of a smart home originated. 
intelligent home devices have long included some type of computational power to reduce manual work. The idea of reducing work using machines has been part of the American consciousness for more than 100 years, well before the technology existed to implement any of the devices coming online today. Think of the conventional washing machine, which with the press of a button automatically soaks, cleans, and wrings out water from a load of clothing. This idea of a home that could minimize work for its inhabitants was sold in mass to American homemakers in the beginning of the 20th century. It came in the form of the world's first vacuum cleaner in 1901, followed by the electric washing machine in 1904. In the following decades, the clothes dryer, clothes iron, refrigerator, dishwasher, garbage disposal, and other appliances would be introduced. The time saved by these automated appliances can't be understated when compared to doing these tasks manually, although it's hard for us today to imagine living without such modern creature comforts. The first instance I could find of a science fiction vision of the smart home was E.M. Forster's The Machine Stops, published in 1909. Forster portrays humanity as an underground dwelling race that depends on a machine to fulfill all their bodily and spiritual needs. That story predicted such advances as instant messaging and video conferencing. In 1948, the book 1984 by George Orwell depicted every home with a connected telescreen and a voice-controlled device called a speakwrite, which today we would think of as a voice assistant. Interestingly, there are other industries that are being disrupted now that have also been part of the collective consciousness for over 100 years. The first crude version of an electric car was invented by Robert Anderson around 1832. This next fact shocked me. By 1900, almost a third of all cars on the road were electric. I was surprised because it's hard to imagine that we went from having electric cars to virtually abandoning them for over a century while we polluted the world with gas-guzzling vehicles only to begin the return to them over the past decade. The problem with the electric cars that were used in the early 1900s was their speed and distance. They were extremely slow at 20 miles per hour and could travel a very short distance of 30 to 40 miles before the batteries needed to be recharged. The earliest versions of the electric vehicle were doomed by the introduction of Henry Ford's affordable Model T in 1908 and the relatively cheap cost of gasoline due to the unearthing of Texas crude oil. By 1935, the electric car was disappearing. It wouldn't re-emerge again until 1997, when Toyota released the Prius, the world's first mass-produced hybrid electric vehicle. It wasn't until 2008 that Tesla began producing luxury electric vehicles that could travel up to 245 miles on a single charge. The history of the smart home has had similar false starts. We think of computers in the home today as useful for surfing the web or writing documents and building spreadsheets. But in 1966, the first home computer, the Echo 4, was built by a Westinghouse engineer on his own time with permission from his employer. The Echo 4 was designed to accomplish, among other things, tasks like computing shopping lists, controlling the temperature of your home, or turning your appliances on and off. The Echo 4 never commercially shipped. As the decades passed, the promise of technology in the home seemed to arrive in slow motion, even while there was a general awareness that this was an area with immense potential. In 1984, the National Association of Home Builders coined the term Smart Home as a niche group that advocated for integrating technological solutions into the home building process. In 1991, a computer scientist, Michael Moser, at the University of Colorado at Boulder, bought a 90-year-old schoolhouse. In the ensuing six years, he outfitted it with 75 sensors 
to help Adaptive House learn more about his lifestyle and adapt to it. Professor Moser devised mathematical techniques for translating discomfort to a cost in dollars that could be weighed against energy costs. For example, when he walked into the bathroom, the light intensity was set to the lowest setting possible to conserve energy. If he complained to the system, it remembered that he wasn't satisfied and it would change the setting for the future. Based on his habits and whether or not he was home, it could also pre-eat the home to a comfortable setting upon his return. Our biggest technology companies and most famous entrepreneurs have long imagined the promise of the smart home. In 1999, Microsoft envisioned a smart home you can still see today in a YouTube video. This video tells a story, with some very retro computer screenshots, that is remarkably similar to how you would imagine a fully developed smart home would operate in the future. Although there are features still not completely available today. A woman walks up to her home, where she is recognized through a camera on the outside wall beside her door that performs a retina scan. Her front door opens and she walks inside. On an interior display, she presses the configuration for Welcome Home. Her lighting, shades, and music are configured to her preferences. Well before the introduction of Alexa, Microsoft imagined a voice assistant where this woman could communicate shopping requests over the network. Her oven was even connected to the network and could send alerts to family members when dinner was ready. Bill Gates famously built much of this technology into his 66,000 square foot compound overlooking Lake Washington adjacent to Seattle. He outfitted his home with fiber optic cables and touchpads for every room. He offered his guests upon entering his home electronic pins to clip to their clothing, alerting the smart home system about their preferences for lighting, music, climate, and even digital art that change as they move throughout his home. In Gates's 1995 book, The Road Ahead, he wrote, A decade from now, access to the millions of images and all the other entertainment opportunities I've described will be available in many homes and will certainly be more impressive than those I'll have when I move into my house in late 1996. My house will just be getting some of the services a little sooner. 21 years have passed since Bill Gates built his home. And while we're close to seeing his full vision deployed commercially, I haven't seen wide rollouts of the retina scan or a house consisting entirely of digital artwork, there have been three significant technological changes I can think of that are beginning to rapidly accelerate the ability of the masses to achieve Gates' vision at a reasonable price point. First, there's high-speed connectivity into the home. Second, there's the proliferation of cloud-based services. And third, there are more powerful and cheaper computer processors within devices. It wasn't until 2013 that 70% of homes had high-speed connectivity. But connectivity into the home is just the starting point. Initially, most homeowners recognized the need to extend the connectivity from its entry point through the walls of the home with Ethernet cables, a very expensive and time-consuming process, particularly when a house is already built. Over the past several years, many of the connected devices are offered through wireless connections that allow for broadband once in the home to be delivered anywhere. This connectivity translates to a paradigm shift in the way we can use programmable services. For example, in setting a temperature on your thermostat or programming your DVR. When high-speed connectivity extends to the home, it's all of a sudden possible for you to reliably program a home device over the internet. Real breakthroughs in the power of these devices don't simply come from them being on the network. Network connectivity would allow me to go to a website and program my TV. Interesting, but not game-changing. 
Another part of the breakthrough is the fact that intelligence doesn't need to live exclusively on the device. This brings us to the second phenomenon, which is cloud computing. Because the cost of cloud computing has dropped precipitously in the past 10 years, it's now affordable for companies to offer incredibly sophisticated services where the intelligence lives in the cloud. For example, voice recognition in a device like the Alexa wouldn't be possible if the entire dictionary and every conceivable phrase were stored locally on the device in your home. Finally, smart home devices would not be feasible without significantly more powerful and less expensive computing power that resides within each device. Remember Nest? You couldn't build the easy-to-use interface they offer without the advances in displays and microprocessors that have been made over the past 10 years. Fast connectivity, cloud computing, and cheaper microprocessors have allowed entrepreneurs to reimagine how home appliances and devices should work. In turn, this has put immense pressure on the largest of companies to reimagine their offerings or else lose market share to startups as their unconnected products become obsolete. I like the image that Microsoft laid out, but it's not nearly taken far enough. If we let our imaginations run wild and blue sky this space, we can paint a much more exciting vision for the future. It will become crystal clear why this space offers so much promise and matters so much to the way we live our lives in the future. Computing is exciting because it's designed to make your life easier. And if the home is gonna make my life easier, then I would imagine it would really need to understand a great deal about who I am and what I was hoping to accomplish, or at the very least to understand the type of life I wanted to live. I think sometimes the easiest way to think of this is with a to-do list. Since the beginning of time, people have been making to-do lists. When I went to college, I remember using a combination of stickies and notepads on the Mac to record all of the things I needed to do. And then sure enough, when I didn't do them, I made new lists in new files on my computer. I needed a notepad and the computer so that when I wasn't home, I could record my to-dos from wherever I was. I imagine if I were more organized, I would have unified them every night on my computer, but inevitably, I ended up with multiple lists. Fast forward to today. It makes so much more sense to keep my list in the cloud, in a Google Doc or an Evernote. And then I can enter or cross off things on my list from any of the devices I own, from my laptop to my iPad to my smartphone. Perhaps it was difficult to imagine such a day 20 years ago because I don't think any of us would have imagined that we'd all be walking around with computers in our hands that doubled as phones. But now we're here. Requirements for the devices I need to carry in order for me to accomplish this objective, namely crossing off items from my to-do list, doesn't necessarily require the devices I carry to get more sophisticated, Google will notify me when I should go for a run. There are services that will text me if something on my list has an address that I'm near to when I'm driving. The service can notify me when I'm near the dry cleaners to pick up my clothes. It's all clunky, but this world is now coming into view. Instead of the list of to-dos being a static thing, it's easy to see how it becomes a living, breathing thing in the cloud, where some service doesn't just record what I need to do, but actually helps me get things done. The intelligence for all of this we might call Watson, after IBM's famed division or artificial intelligence, AI for short. We'll get to that later. Imagine the next iteration of to-do lists where a service is smart enough to rearrange my schedule to help me get things done, 
or perhaps a version beyond that where a service integrates with other family members, colleagues, friends, helping by assigning tasks or errands more easily performed by someone else. For some time now, technology at work has felt like the world is conspiring to help make my life easier. Could the home be the same way? Can we get to a place where the home is designed to help me accomplish my goals? Can the home change from a structure for shelter to a place that literally takes care of me? Or is that too futuristic? Imagine a cloud-based service that synthesizes data from my home, my calendar, my Fitbit, and my entertainment choices. Could the service regulate my household temperature, play my music, set my alarm, handle my home security, order groceries, replenish household staples, and clean up after me? The promise of the smart home seems limitless. In 2016, $76 billion was spent in the global smart home space. By 2022, this market is expected to grow to $158 billion. And that really depends on how you define the market. I'm not including the amount of products that might be sold into the home because the home is instructing some commerce site that a particular product needs to be replenished. The next six episodes will try to describe how and when we might get to a place where this vision is realized and also which companies are most likely to get us there. Tune in to the next episode in this series on the future of the smart home, where I'll investigate how startups have been making waves with innovative hardware devices and the evolving role of crowdfunding. If you'd like to learn more about the people featured in this podcast, go to predictingourfuture.com and don't forget to subscribe. This is predicting our future.